This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Synchronize your watches for this one if you're interested in the Pipeline Project. Ian Anderson, he is the CEO of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So this is the head guy for the project. 12.30 this afternoon. He'll take your calls, too. And we're going to go like 45 minutes with him. So lots of opportunity for you to have your say on the pipeline. So get set to call me up at uh, 1230. You can talk to the top guy on the pipeline. That's our hot question of the day. Some people think this pipeline will never get built, whether it's been approved or not. That's our question today. Do you think the pipeline expansion will actually get built? Would you say, yes, it simply must get built. It will get built. Or will you say, no, It'll never happen. At CKNW on Twitter is where you will find that poll today. At CKNW on Twitter. Uh, follow me there, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. Mike Smith News on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line today. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. We're all in the right place at the right time with the promise that Western Canada offers uh, with our resources, our well-educated people, our the strength of our indigenous people, our new Canadians, uh, and uh, there's so much where we can uh, work together uh, to strengthen the Federation and strengthen uh, the peop- the uh, economies of Western Canada. That was uh, Jason Kenney, of course, the Premier of Alberta, speaking today at the Western Premier's Conference going on in Edmonton and striking a cordial note there saying that Western Premiers are together, they want to work together. Well, I'd love to be at a fly on the wall of this thing and see what they're really saying to each other behind closed doors, especially between him and Horgan. Because, of course, we got the pipeline fight still going on. We got court cases flying all over the place. We got uh, threats flying across the border still officially. I think they'll all play nice in public. But behind closed doors, I don't know. I think it might be a different story. Let's check in now with Scott Johnson. He's the City Hall Bureau Chief for 630 Ched in Edmonton. Hi, Scott. How are you doing, Mike? Great. Thanks a lot for coming on. So I th- I was wondering if this thing could be like the Rumble in the Rockies and you could sell pay-per-view tickets to this thing, but maybe they'll, Horgan and Kenny will play nice in public, do you think? Well, if you sell pay-per-view, that would get rid of some deficits. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, they, they'll, they'll play nice. I mean, they, they had a social engagement last night with all the premiers and the word came out of that that it was a positive meeting positive comments so yeah they're they're going to put up a united front because really you look at these meetings and they're the precursor to the council of the federation get together which will be in three weeks in saskatoon with premier mo uh chairing it so they you know you get all these conservative premiers together and You've got a federal election coming up, so you got to look at all these meetings through that lens of what's happening federally. Okay, I, I think they will. I mean, there's always some diplomacy that goes on here when they stand in front of the microphones in front of all those reporters. So, uh, you know, I don't think there's going to be any mudslinging in public going on. But I guess got to wonder if Horgan is kind of the odd man out at this thing. I mean, if you take a look around that table, you've got Jason Kenney, and then he's got all his buddies. He's got Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, Manitoba, Brian Pallister, even the three territorial premiers from the, uh, Nunavut Northwest Territories in the Yukon. You know, Horgan's like the only NDP NDP guy there. Yeah, and it just seems like on the other outside, he's you know, they could they gang up on him. 
Uh, sure. I mean, you got Sandy Silver from the Yukon. He's more uh, liberal than NDP or anything. But uh, yeah, Bob McLeod from the, the Northwest Territories is conservative and signed the, that letter of intent with the other premiers. They're probably sitting there saying, "Look, you lost the appellate court five nothing. So you got that against you. Let's look at the upside of this jobs." prosperity and Jason Kenney in his news conference yesterday afternoon at the Alberta legislature talked about the polls in British Columbia where yeah. 60% he cited say uh, let's build the pipeline and he, he said and I, I noted it's, it's only 15% are vehemently against it so yeah. you're going to get that all the time too with any group that just doesn't like prosperity or or I mean, job creation, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that they're probably just laying the facts into him, and whether yeah. it'll do any good, we'll find out down the road. Well, Horgan, I think he's going to be isolated at this meeting, but Horgan's no pushover either. So, you know, you're certainly not going to see Horgan kind of knuckle under in any kind of pressure tactics here, I don't think. But that comment that Kenny made about the polls on pipeline attitudes in British Columbia, that kind of jumped out at me too, because I think it just shows... Once again, Kenny is an extremely politically astute guy. He knows which way the winds are blowing, not only in Alberta, but he's very attuned to what's going on next door in British Columbia. And here he is citing polling data in B.C., and he's really drilling down into the numbers saying, like, oh, only 15% of British Columbians strongly uh, oppose the pipeline. So, I mean, this is a guy who's paying very close attention to political opinions on on our side of the Rockies here and and, and his, his government has put up billboards all over the lower mainland here in Metro Vancouver saying if you don't like high gas prices tell Horgan to build this pipeline so he's, he's a very clever guy politically not only in his own province but right here in BC too he, he knows he knows where Horgan's vulnerable I think and, and he, in his news conference yesterday with the rapid punches he said oh and how's the dollar seventy a liter gas uh, at the pumps to, uh, doing for you as well. So well, yeah, it's not a, it's not a dollar seventy anymore. It's gone down. Thank God. It's still higher than the, what you guys are paying. I'm sure. Oh yeah, we're ninety six nine today here. Oh yeah, yeah, we're paying more than that. You know. Okay, so um, I thought it was interesting too what you said about the federal election because uh, that's coming up in the fall and that's kind of the backdrop for this too, right? And you've got a lot of these premiers who I'm sure would probably like to see the federal conservatives. Uh, win the election in the fall. So I wonder if there might be some some posturing coming out of this Western Premier's meeting on things like, I don't know, carbon taxes or any, anything to kind of help out the federal conservatives in a way, do you think? Well, uh, Kenny, even going into the meeting with his comments in the last week or two, he says, you're darn right we're going to try to get Andrew Scheer uh, elected. Uh, you know, that's his goal, but there's yeah. fiscal, uh, federal fiscal transfer Payments that are on the table today, international trade, labor mobility between the provinces, which the uh, CPC has said that, yeah, we, we want to work on uh, labor mobility and interprovincial trade. So, yeah, there's lots of boxes that they're trying to tick off in this meeting and to take to the Saskatoon meeting in three weeks that will uh, play well to the conservative base and maybe open that tent a little wider as well. Okay, I'm speaking to Scott Johnson. He's with 630 Ched in Edmonton. Scott, I noted that on Twitter last night that Jason Kenney uh, tweeted out a photo of a lot of these Western premiers uh, gathered together for a little get-together yesterday at Fort Edmonton uh, Park there. And 
everybody was there except Horgan. So you got Kenny with all his buddies, all these kind of right-wing premiers that he's pals with, but Horgan wasn't there. Now, I understand Horgan arrived later, but I, I almost thought, like, that. there's an example of a photographic evidence of how Horgan's kind of on the outside. He's kind of an outlier in this group. And, and my colleague Richard Zussman uh, is reporting that Horgan is leaving immediately after the meeting today to get back oh. for uh, uh, some kind of announcement tomorrow on uh, athletic training or something like that. I, I don't remember the exact details, yeah. but uh, you know, that that is that shouldn't single Horgan out, though, because that quite often happens at these premier meetings where uh, quite often one or two of them have to leave before the thing's completely over. So uh, don't read too much into that. How is how is Kenny doing in Alberta these days? The honeymoon still going with this guy? For a little bit. I mean, we had the earplug uh, flap up the other day, and uh, <laughs> remember, uh, Edmonton is still the Sea of Orange in the or the Island of Orange in the Sea of Blue for the rest of the province. So, uh, what you hear out of Calgary or what you hear out of the rest of the province doesn't necessarily mesh with what you're hearing here in Edmonton. Yeah, right. They vote NDP in Edmonton. Do they are liberal? Oh, all, all—it's all orange. There's only two parties with seats these days. Yeah, yeah, and okay, NDP, of course, right? Okay, um, these meetings go on behind closed doors all day. Is that the plan? And then there's a news conference later, or what's what's going on? Three o'clock your time is the news conference. Yeah, yeah okay. and uh, everything—it's pretty informal. I mean, they're sitting around one big table, and they'll work their way through the agenda, which had things thrown at the last minute, like with uh, Brian Pallister of Manitoba asking about the uh, Quebec situation with religious symbols, and then the China meat thing that popped up on the eve of this. That had them talking, and that's something else that uh, they have to work on and show a united front and take that to the feds, because you've got Minister Jim Carr and uh, Agriculture Minister Bebo working that well. Trudeau is over in Japan at the G20. Scott, thanks for coming on. You got it, Mike. I appreciate it. Scott Johnson, he's the City Hall Bureau Chief in Edmonton there. He's with our sister station there, 630 Ched. Let's talk now about the continuing turmoil going on over at Surrey City Hall. Uh, You got another councillor who has quit Mayor Doug McCallum's ruling party there, the Safe Surrey Coalition. Remember, this is the party that ran on a slate to bring SkyTrain to Surrey and a new SkyTrain line and also get rid of the RCMP and go with a uh, local police force. All looked pretty good for McCallum. He uh, rolled to a big majority there, but it just seems to have been nothing but trouble. Yet Stephen Pettigrew, one of his, his counselors at earlier, uh, stepped aside from the Safe Surrey Coalition, and now another counselor bailing out on McCallum. This time it is Brenda Locke. She was on with Simi Sarah this morning. She, here she explains the reasons for her departure. Well, I'm specifically talking about the press release that the mayor did about with me, that he, he said I was fear-mongering, and, and he made some personal directive uh, comments about me. But in terms of the police transition, um, I am unhappy with the report itself. I think it uh, falls short, short on uh, many places. And I think that the uh, public survey that was done um, after the report was absolutely uh, was absolutely a terrible survey. But this has been uh, quite ongoing where the mayor has been doing and saying things that are um, somewhat erratic at times. I mean, I can, you know, the, 
the canal became quite famous and that uh, blindsided everybody in uh, on council. So I think there's been a number of things that uh, that got me to this point. Okay, that's Brenda Locke uh, explaining why she has now stepped aside from McCallum's party, the Safe Surrey Coalition. Now, after that interview aired, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum spoke to our own Global News senior reporter, Janet Brown. McCallum says that Locke has got some splaining to do. Here he is. Your response to what uh, Brenda Locke decided to do today? Um, I think um, Brenda ran with us um, in the campaign under the uh, Safe Surrey Coalition. Um, she agreed with our platform at that time, and, and um, I think um, she's going to have. She got elected with uh, tens of thousands of votes, um, and she's going to have to explain to those people that voted for her on her change of position. Um, we in the Safe Surrey Coalition, along with um, our council members, are going to continue on with our agenda that we promised residents of Surrey that we would do um, if we're elected. She had really strong words for you. She said you don't listen, um, and she was very critical of way, the way you responded to her comments regarding Sophie's place in the staffing by RCMP. How do you respond to that? Well, I think um, we've been um, we've um, you've been at council and you've seen how um, council works. Um, everybody gets the opportunity uh, through the agenda to speak, and um, that's the way all councils run. And, she certainly has had many times during council to speak on issues that come up before council. So um, we work as as a council, and we work on on our platform that we campaigned on, and we will continue. I, I think um, um, I can say um, that we're moving ahead with all the things that we promised uh, to our residents um, in our platform. That's not what she says. She says it's become very dysfunctional. How do you respond? Well, I don't think so. Um, certainly uh, uh, one or two councillors um, have not uh, have decided not to go along with what's on the agenda, but I think that uh, we're going to carry on um, with the agenda. Um, we got elected on the basis of a platform that we intend to um, complete for the residents of Surrey. Okay, good interview there by Janet Brown. That's Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum reacting to Councillor Brenda Locke, the latest to bail out on McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition. Let's check in with another city councillor now, Stephen Pettigrew, who left the Safe Surrey Coalition a few weeks ago. He joins us now. Hi, Stephen. Good morning to you. Right, thanks a lot for coming on. How do you react to your, your colleague Brenda Locke uh, basically following your uh, move and uh, leaving the Safe Surrey Coalition? What do you think of that? I'm very supportive of her move. Uh, ben is a, a wonderful lady to work with, and I've gone to her for many times for suggestions, and we have a good dialogue, and I'm really excited. I don't see this as a uh, as a negative. It's a wonderful thing for the people of Surrey, and I'm, I'm fully supportive of what she did. How is it How is it a good thing for the city? Because now she doesn't have any sort of obligation that she has to perhaps um, maybe be associated with the party. Um, that's the sort of thing the the people of Surrey that voted her into office are not going to be affected as far as whether she's part of the coalition or whether she's not part of the coalition. So she's free now to be able to say and speak her mind. Is, I know she was able to do that before, but I think it's, yeah. a, it's a great move. Okay, she was. Uh, she had some very specific complaints there about when and why she left the Safe Surrey Coalition. One thing she was upset about was a press release that McCallum put out in which he, he criticized 
her after she had criticized the policing transition plan. Do you what do you think about the way McCallum's running things over there? I have great concerns about the way that the city's been run. And Monday night's council meeting was a good example of that. And I believe that council members and mayors should be accountable to the people. We serve the people, we're elected by the people, we should be responsible to them. And there should be some sort of mechanism in place to make sure that we are doing our jobs and that we follow the rules. And these mechanisms, I believe, are the community charter and our procedural bylaws. These are the things which we should be following, and these are the things which are not being followed. This is what I was trying to raise on Monday night. I was trying to raise awareness of that. And these are grave concerns that I have about the direction of our city and the direction that the the way that the council meetings are being chaired and run, it's, it's a very much a concern in my mind. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised at all to hear you say that after you had a, uh, quite a confrontation there with the mayor and, and uh, McCallum at, at one point even threatened to have you removed from the, from the council chamber. You just heard McCallum there reacting and he said that he thinks council is working fine. He says everyone gets a chance to speak when they want to say their piece. I, do you disagree with him? I think that people would just, if they can answer that for themselves, it's quite clear that's not happening, but it's by watching the council meetings. The situation has been run from the very beginning that this is a situation where the mayor is dictating the direction of the city, and council has very little involvement in any of the decisions that have happened throughout the last several months. The majority of the way that I find out about things and the way the council finds out about issues that are happening is when a press release comes out or when a, a media person contacts us and says, oh, what do you think about this new initiative? That's generally how we find out about things. There's no sort of collaboration between council and discussion. It's all being run and directed by the mayor. And this is the way, and this is not a democracy. This is not the way things should be run. It's okay for people to disagree, but we should have a, 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 an open forum that we can come and, and in council and be able to talk and be able to debate and to be able to then have a proper vote, and that is not happening. So I have some, yeah, that's that's what's happening right now. Okay, that's very interesting. I'm speaking to Surrey City Councilor Stephen Pettigrew. He's an independent there at Surrey Council now after stepping aside from the Safe Surrey Coalition. Councilor, uh, when you're mention, mentioning there, there's there's been times that you find out about stuff through a press release or the media calling you up about things the mayor has said. Can you give me a few examples of stuff that McCallum has done that surprised you or took you unawares? Well, the, the most... Uh, Pressing one, or the most current ones, was the the canals. That was, that was an interest. I found out that through the press. The release of the police report, I found out through the press. Uh, there was a couple of examples there. The ones of the announcement of who was going to be looking at, in charge of the um, of the police transition. Those ones that immediately come to mind. But that's generally how we find out about things. They're not discussed with us, and we we don't have input on into what's going on. Do you still support the, the general objectives of, of the Safe Surrey Coalition? I mean, you ran with them, and there was a unanimous vote at Surrey City Hall to get rid of the RCMP and transition to a municipal police force. Do you still support that objective? So the, there's two questions. You know, first, am I letting down my voters? And I don't believe I am. I've okay. had been contacted by numerous, numerous people that are supportive. The three pillars, so I'll address those. Sure. And... The one is that that's what we agreed upon as a coalition. Do we support the three pillars? And beyond that, we're supposed to be independent. So one by one, so SkyTrain. Do I still support a SkyTrain extension to Langley? Yes. Um, I'm deeply concerned about it, though. I'm deeply concerned that we are in jeopardy of having that actually um, lost 
And there's so much opposition from the other municipalities because of the way that they're being treated. And so I'm grave concerns about how far we can go. But yes, I'm definitely supportive of trying to make sure that goes through as far as we can go. So there's not an issue there. The municipal police force. Yes, I'm concerned about that very, very much. Um, Ultimately, what I want is what is best for the people of Surrey. I want to make sure at the end of the day that when the dust is settled, that we are safer than we were six months ago. And I don't pretend to be a knowledge or expert in these topics. And so what I rely upon is input from the public. And this is what has been missing throughout this transition process. First of all, the council was not consulted in any way and hasn't been consulted through the entire transition process to do with the transition to a municipal police force. That hasn't happened. But even more upsetting is the public has not been consulted. And I'm very much concerned about this. And I do not support any further movement in the transition process unless the public is fully engaged and they're supportive of this process and we have a, a real accountability to them. And so at this point, I would say it wasn't in the hands of the province. So I'm trusting the province to do the job that we as a municipality did not do. We did not do our due diligence. We did not do a cost-benefit analysis. And I'm hoping that the province will now do that job that we let the, the public down on. So I'm very much concerned about that. The third pillar is smart development. That's still trying to be defined. Everybody seems to have a different version of what smart development means. Okay. That is still coming through staff. At some point, staff will be coming back to us with a specific uh, corporate report listing what smart development means and Yes, I do support smart development, okay. but it's very loosely defined. Okay, Councillor, I just got one minute here. Is McCallum losing control of this council, in your opinion? Count Mayor had Yes, it's a very... This council is... The best way to pronounce that is this council is dysfunctional right now. It's not a democracy, and we need to restore democracy to this council. We need to make sure that Proper rules are followed, debate is happening, points of orders are actually done properly, and this council, yeah, this council is uh, very much okay. in a very dangerous situation. Thanks for coming on. All right, you have a great day. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Stephen Pettigrew, Surrey City Councillor, now an independent. He quit McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition a couple of weeks ago. Let's talk about your expanded transit options now. Now, one of the original ideas was, why can't we get SkyTrain running around the clock on weekends? I mean, that'd be awesome for people who are downtown. Maybe they're out for the night looking for a way to get home. Why can't we expand those uh, SkyTrain services? After a study by TransLink, they say that's no-go. You can't run SkyTrain 24 hours because uh, they don't have the capacity to maintain it. Well, that's too bad. No 24-hour SkyTrain for you. However, there is a plan for added night bus service uh, coming on stream. But think about this. What about bringing in a bus service that would run along the SkyTrain routes uh, in order to basically mirror the SkyTrain service just using a bus service instead? That was an idea that was in front of Metro Vancouver Mayor's. Uh, let's get an update on that now with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Mayor Stewart, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Nice to talk to you, Michael. Appreciate it a lot. So this was um, this uh, idea for a mirrored bus service that would run along the SkyTrain line. You like that idea, right? 
Yeah, we had a great study here today. Uh, staffs have been looking at this for a year and a half. They've gone to cities all around the world. You know, the question was, can we run SkyTrain 24-7? The answer back was, is that really no other city do they do this because of maintenance? So that was really off the, you know, off, off the table. However, what they came back with was an excellent idea to run this shadow nighttime bus service that would essentially, when SkyTrain stops, you would get all the same stops that you would regularly get on SkyTrain, but it would have express buses. And, uh, you know, I lived in London for quite a while, and they, and they do have this service in the U.K. It's excellent. I used it all the time. So I put forward a motion to expedite this service and to ask the federal and provincial governments for funding. It's only $4 million a year, but it would move 1.6 million people a year at night when people are most vulnerable. Like you say, they're coming home from from uh, you know being downtown or uh, you know out for the night or they're working hospital workers police firefighters uh, you know moving people over the region at nighttime is so important and uh, unfortunately I had some mayors with me but uh, but uh, the the majority of mayors on uh, the mayor's council decided to refer this back to staff for further study and you know what happens then it just goes off and dies uh, so I'm oh. really concerned that. Uh, that this has to be brought back as quickly as possible, and that we have to find a way to fund this. Okay, that's very disappointing to hear, I'm sure, for a lot of people. Now, this plan would have buses follow along the SkyTrain route. So we're talking the Expo and the Millennium lines, correct? Yeah, well, hopefully all lines. Uh, the, okay. the initial price tag is about $4 bucks to do that per year. And there's no capital costs. There's no buses to buy because we already have them. We would just be hiring more operators uh, to do this and running them at night. Okay, I guess it would be a little slower than the SkyTrain. Well, actually, there's no traffic at 4 o'clock in the morning, yeah, right. so yeah. I've used this uh, in the U.K., and actually, I used to wait for the tube to end and the night buses to start because they were faster. Wow. And, uh, you know, I just think if we're going to be a global city, we got to make these kind of choices, and I'm, I'm very disappointed that we've delayed this. Uh, you know, and I really feel bad for the 1.6 million people who are now going to have to, you know, insure a car and pay high gas prices to get to their jobs or, or to, you know, and, and this would really cut down on uh, drinking driving as well. So uh, very short-sighted in my view. Okay, that's disappointing to hear. Now, you said that you did have some Metro Vancouver mayors on board with this. Which, which mayors were lining up with you on this? It was hard to tell exactly because we don't record the votes, but uh, I know Surrey Doug McCallum uh, spoke strongly in favor of this, uh, uh, Mayor Linda Buchanan, because it would also mirror the uh, it would also mirror the um, uh, the C bus route, so you could actually oh. get a twenty four seven you know service over to the North Shore and then you know pick wow. up a cab or something from there. So I, I I'm really kind of. You know, I'm, I'm saying I'm disappointed, but I'm, I'm actually upset that this hasn't, uh, that hasn't, you know, if we can move this forward even by a couple of months, it's worth it. And again, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on transit, uh, you know, on our roads and stuff, four million bucks a year to get this going. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm a little, like I said, I'm just dumbfounded that we couldn't find the, uh, the will to move forward with this today. Wow. Okay. Linda Buchanan, of course, the mayor of North Vancouver. So, you know, I can see how she'd be in favor of it if it's going to mean improved services for her community. Doug McCallum, so you'd have some better services in, in Surrey too, right, with that plan? Yeah. That's yeah. right. Oh, yeah. Every every SkyTrain stop eventually. Right. I mean, we'd have to, you know, staff, it was an initial idea. They would come back right away with what this would look like. That's what I was trying to do to expedite it. Um, and then what happens in other cities is that taxis tend to collect around, you know, four o'clock in the morning. The taxis know where to go to. They go to the SkyTrain stations and they wait there. And then when you get off the train at 430, 
there's more cabs available, and then you get things like food trucks and, and other stuff that would collect around the busiest sites. Uh, and so okay. it, it actually turns your city into a 24-7 city, uh, or those folks are already living uh, most their, you know, they're awake in the middle of the night doing whatever they do, good working, having a good time. It, it accommodates their lifestyle. And we got to think bigger in this region or we're going to get left behind globally. Okay. For, uh, we just got a minute left, Mayor Stewart. So four million bucks, did you have the money for it? No, that's part of these choices. And uh, but part of my amendment was to immediately go to the federal and provincial governments and ask for this. Uh, there's there's a couple of uh, folks uh, from the police services that are that have you know that are mayors, and they're saying it's also a public safety issue. So what I know is uh, during an election year, anything's possible. And yeah. just just yeah. to write a letter would have, that's all I asked for. Like let's write a letter and ask if okay. we can get this at least for a pilot project or something. But nope, that wasn't uh, that wasn't accepted. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks for okay, thanks I for appre- me up. I appreciate it. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart there, clearly disappointed, to say the least. He's upset. Okay, let's talk about China's sudden ban on Canadian meat imports now. This has rocked the Canadian meat industry. China is a major export market for Canadian meat products, especially pork. Is this China ban fair? How will it impact our industry here? Can the dispute be resolved? Let's talk about all these questions now with my guest, Chris White. He is the president of the Canadian Meat Council. Chris, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, Chris, China announced this ban on Canadian meat products earlier in the week. They say they discovered traces of this banned feed additive. It's banned in China called roctocamine. What is this stuff, roctocamine? Maybe you can tell us that first. Uh, it's called. It's pronounced actually roctopamine. It's a... It's, uh, mu- it's, it's to help with the muscle growth of, uh, of animals. So some countries allow it and China doesn't. So Canada has a ractopamine-free program for pork. Okay. Is this drug widely used in Canada? No, not at all. How, if it's not used widely in Canada, how is it possible that they've, the Chinese found it? Well, I think that's part of the investigation that the Canadian Food Inspection Agency has going on right now because there is not supposed to be any product that is exported to China that has it. So the Chinese have identified it. So the question now is, is it, is, did, the project, did the product originate in Canada? And if so, where did it come from? How did it get in? But until we have the results of the CFI investigation, we're in a bit of a holding pattern. Okay. Can, the, uh, the Chinese are complaining that the Canadian meat that they received came with a, a, a fake certificate. China Canadian exports of pork to China are supposed to carry an official certificate certifying that the meat is free of this drug. Does does that make sense to you that they would receive meat from Canada with a with a fake certificate? No, and I you know certainly in our experience with uh, the, you know if you consider the volumes of product that Canada exports. This is, uh, as best as anyone can identify, one of the first incidents where fraudulent certi- certifications have ever been identified, and that is also part of the CFIA investigation. And as you may have noted yesterday, uh, the government has got both the RCMP and Canada Border Service assisting them with that investigation. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that this particular drug, ractocamine, is not widely used in Canada. It's legal in Canada, though, right? The industry could use it if they wanted to? They could, for sure. Yeah, how come they don't use it? Well, because China is such an important export market, and China doesn't want it in their product, 
so they don't use it for that reason. Okay. Therefore, is it possible that this meat that the, the Chinese received, if it, if it had this stuff in it, maybe it didn't come from Canada? Is it possible it came from somewhere else? Well, that's certainly, I think, part of the investigation that CFIA uh, is looking at. They're looking at all possible avenues, and that certainly is one of those uh, one of those things that they're looking at for sure. Okay, what does this mean for the industry here in Canada? Well, I mean, in short term, uh, you know, we know our officials at the political and the bureaucratic levels are talking to their counterparts in China, um, and you know, companies are looking to identify other markets where they can send their products. And everyone is hoping that the shutdown doesn't, the temporary suspension doesn't last too long. Did, did you guys get any kind of heads up or see this coming? Because I, I, I note that the China complained to Canadian authorities about this nearly two weeks ago. Did they advise you guys this was going on? No, but they wouldn't advise, you know, they wouldn't advise the trade association. They yeah. certainly, I would imagine, uh, have made their concerns to government to government and certainly I you know CFA was aware of it and they were doing what they could to begin to provide Chinese officials with documentation and with evidence um, so you know we'll have to see how the investigation unfolds but the investigation is taking place in real time yeah and what's your gut instinct on it Chris I mean given the fact that this particular drug banned in China but as you say not widely used in Canada anyway what are the odds? Do you like? Do you have a gut feeling on what on what this is about? I mean, maybe this meat came from somewhere else. Would that be your guess? Well, I wouldn't want to speculate, but all I would say yeah. is that Canada has a very robust uh, system, and those that produce product for export are very, very judicious in terms of what goes into their product. So I'm hoping at the end of the day, it's not uh, it's not Canadian product. But until we have the the results. You know, I, I can't speculate, but we're quite confident in in the system that Canada has, in the inspection system that Canada has. Right. How much meat do we sell to China? Uh, well, on the beef side, this year the exports are trending towards about 100 million, and on the pork side, uh, we're at about uh, five, between five and 600 million so far. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. This is an important market for Canada, right? Yeah, so on the pork side, uh, China is our third largest export market, and on beef, it's our fifth largest export market. Okay, do you have any suspicion or fear that this is kind of a, a, a political thing that's going on? I mean, there have been conflicts between Canada and China ever since last year when Canadian authorities arrested that Meng Wanzhou, that Chinese tech executive in Vancouver, and things have been going downhill ever since then. I mean... My goodness, they even they even buzzed one of our warplanes out in the ocean there this week. So, uh, do you have any fear or suspicion that maybe you guys are kind of innocently been caught up on this? You know, it's hard to say. I think that's why we're you know you've got Christian Freeland, you've got the Prime Minister, you've got the Minister of International Trade. I think they're looking at it from all possible angles, and from our perspective, we're just working closely with uh, the Department of Agriculture and CFIA and give them whatever information we can have to help them with the investigation. Right, right. So you guys are fully cooperating. You you want this resolved quickly, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, how can we how can we fix this, do you think? What what needs to be done? Well, I think, you know, uh, we just we're in a bit of a holding pattern because a lot of the investigation, uh, you know, it's a CFIA led investigation, but the fact that the RCP Canada border 
services are engaged. I think that gives an indication as to how seriously the government is taking it and how they're trying to expedite whatever information, whatever evidence that they can uh, provide to the Chinese to give them some assurance that the product did not originate from Canada. If Canadians, if we were allowed to inspect this this meat that the Chinese are worried about or, worried about or complaining about and take a look at this so-called fake certificate, do you think that they could uh, get to the bottom of it? Well, I'm confident they will. Uh, it's yeah. just, you know, now that you've got the RCMP and Canada border involved, that's just um, that's just another element. And, you know, you have to make sure that they're comfortable with the findings as well before CFIA would release them to the Chinese. But Yeah, if, if this drags on, I hope it's resolved quickly for you, Chris. If it drags on, could it result in any job losses in Canada? Uh, I think it's hard to say because without knowing what other markets might open up for Canadian products, how quickly those markets would open up, uh, I wouldn't want to speculate on job loss. And I know that the companies that are directly affected are already looking at other markets for their products. So yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't know at this point. What other markets could we possibly ship to? Could we, could we sell more to the Americans or something? Possibly the Americans, uh, possibly some other Asian countries. Um, it just depends. Some of it may just come back to Canada, uh, and it'll be used for rendering. Um, but the you know the beef the beef guys are looking at their markets, and the pork guys are looking at their markets and seeing where there's an opportunity to to export. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much. That's Chris White, president of the Canadian Meat Council. Let's talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline now. Certainly of keen interest in British Columbia next door. In Alberta, the Western Premiers Conference going on uh, right now. Western Premiers meeting behind doors at this hour. You can bet they're probably talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline at their meetings today. But let's talk about the project right now. Earlier this month, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project again. He wants uh, construction to restart on the project. Let's talk to the guy in charge of it now, Ian Anderson. He is the president and CEO of Trans Mountain. He's in the studio. He's willing to take your phone calls on the show today. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, welcome back to the show. Hi, Mike. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming in. So I'm curious about one thing. The project is owned by the federal government now. So does that? do you report to the federal government now? Like is Justin Trudeau your boss now, or how does that work? Well, maybe up the food chain, and at some point he is. But I've got an independent board that I report to. Um, the Minister of Finance appointed a top-notch board. So I've got a board of directors, and that's, uh, that's who I work for and, and take my direction from. What is the status of the project right now? Well, right now we're awaiting uh, the opportunity to restart. We've got some process to go through with the National Energy Board to reinstate the record as it was uh, last fall when the Federal Court of Appeal decision uh, halted the work. So we've got a bit of process to go through to reaffirm the root decisions that were made and the condition filings that we made. And we expect that process will take a number of weeks to get through. And uh, if it goes according to the plan as I see it anyway, we could could be uh, back to work by uh, early to mid-September. Okay, I appreciate you've agreed to take some phone calls, so I'm going to read the phone line out right now, and we'll get our pipeline hotline going here. So if you want to have a word with Ian Anderson, President CEO of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, here's your opportunity. So we'll open the phones right now. We'll line some calls up. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898. Star 9898. 
toll-free on your cell. You mentioned that you, you want to get construction going again. Is there, is there a construction timetable or a schedule? We've got a few um, schedule scenarios that we've run. They're all really dependent upon how quickly the the current process with the NEB is going to take. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be subject to comments, and people are going to have views on what the next steps need to be. The board of uh, the National Energy Board will need to, you know, review that and uh, determine, you know, the ultimate outcome. But uh, like I said, we're we're working on a on a path for a September commencement, and if we get clearance for that in the coming weeks, uh, we could be in service and completed by uh, by mid-2022 is the current plan. Okay, the project has been approved already, right? So what, what is the National Energy Board's role in the project right now? Well, as I said, there, there was a, a whole bunch of work done over the last couple of years to, as you know, we've got 156 conditions we have to satisfy. So right. we had dozens and dozens of filings in with the NEB that they approved all of which effectively need to be reapproved and brought forward as as kind of the the current state to bring us back to where we were last August. I see. Okay. Um, there have been some. I've seen some photos and, and video online of pipeline being moved into place on on trains and that kind of thing. Are you guys? Is that your? Are those your pipes? Are you getting ready to put them in the ground? Is that is there, like? Is there some staging work going on already now? Yeah. Ready? In fact. Uh, it, it, that was our pipe that was uh, filmed uh, going through downtown Calgary about a week or week and a half ago. Yeah. And that pipe was going from the Everaz facility in Regina on its way out to uh, one of our stock uh, pile locations in Kamloops. So we've got about a third of the pipe already in stockpile locations between Edmonton and the lower mainland, Kamloops being one of the locations. And um, all of that is pipe that was ordered back uh, a year, a year and a half ago that's now in production and, and heading its way onto uh, site locations. Okay, if you did begin construction again in September, as you mentioned, where precisely would the work start? Well, the place we'll get started at first will be in the water at the Westridge uh, Dock Facility, which is where we were working, you know, quite uh, aggressively when we were uh, called down last uh, last fall. So we'll go back to uh, the water uh, to work on our dock facility. We'll also recommence work in Alberta, where we had started last August. So uh, between Edmonton and uh, and Jasper Park, there's locations there we'll go back to, and we'll probably get started in. Edmonton itself. We're, we're ready, fully permitted, and, and ready to go in Edmonton. So most of the work will be in and around our Westridge facility and uh, in, a, and in the spreads in Alberta. Right. Okay, right, in Burnaby. Uh, Westridge right? is in Burnaby, correct. Right, yeah. right. So you would start doing some work here. We, there have been some <laughs> trouble down there with protests and whatnot in the past there. Do you anticipate that if you restart construction, you'd once again have to be dealing with protesters? Uh, we we expect people to you know express their views and have their opinions and and kind of restate them publicly. I we're we're anticipating there likely will be some protest activity. It's hard to to avoid you know the the commentary that you see that uh, uh, people's intentions. We're going to be focused on ensuring those work sites are safe, that the people are safe, that the facilities are protected, and that you know we just uh, hope for 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 peaceful protest and, and law abiding protest. Uh, we got a full board of calls right now, so if you get a busy signal, just wait a little bit and call back. 604-280-9898. Uh, let's go right to the phone calls here. Jan in Coquitlam. Hi. Hello. Hi there. Go ahead. 
Hi. Um, I was wondering, what kind of testing has there been done of, we have a heavy spill of the bitumen in the ocean. What kind of testing has been done and what percentage of the product has been, can be extracted or cleaned up? Ian Anderson. Yeah, that's a good question, Jan. Um, there's been several rounds of study conducted both by ourselves, um, uh, Natural Resources Canada, uh, the Royal Academy of Science have all done progressively more detailed study around what we call the fate and the behavior of oil on water. Uh, we've tested various commodities from light oil to heavy oil. Uh, diluted bitumen behaves essentially the same as any other heavy oil. Um, it behaves the same in, in both uh, fresh water and, uh, and salt water. And it floats, uh, and it floats for a good period of time, uh, as measured in, uh, in, in many hours into several days. The key is response capability and speed of response, uh, which is why we're investing $150 million in added response bases along the, the, the Sailor Sea uh, and, and the transit corridor of the vessels. We're adding 100 people and boats and equipment in those bases so that we can uh, get uh, access to an immediate um, uh, equipment on the water in the event of any incident. We haven't had an incident in 60 years. Uh, we're not expecting to have one, but we'll have the resources deployed quickly enough to, uh, to gather up uh, virtually all of the oil that uh, would be floating if an incident ever is it is it also not true though that under some very common marine conditions that the oil can the bitumen can sink if you've get, if you've got some rapids moving if if it binds with a particulate matter in the, in the water column it can actually sink right if 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 there is um, turbidity in the water if there is right. rapid water movement that's bringing up silt and there are there are particulates in the water uh, the oil can attach to that and and sink therefore um, it's speed of response uh, and it's and it's all the preventative measures to ensure it doesn't happen in the first place but we're we're well equipped to have state-of-the-art um, uh, response capabilities on the uh, on the coastline here in British Columbia so that we can respond uh, uh, within a couple of hours to any incident on any location. Let's go to Dave and Fanny Bay. Hi. Hi Dave. there, guys. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I'd like to ask the guest, uh, maybe he could educate us about the dilutant. It's my understanding there's uh, a separate pipeline being built for that. What is the nature of that product and how uh, toxic is it? And do you, um, do you have to have a more rigorous pipeline for, for that uh, the delayed dilutant material. Ian Anderson. We've got an existing pipeline today that moves every type of uh, petroleum product, uh, everything from gasoline and diesel right up to heavy oil, including diluted bitumen. The new pipeline that we're constructing, uh, in large part in parallel with the existing, uh, will carry the heavier commodities in it, included diluted bitumen. Um, and uh, the the existing pipeline will move uh, the uh, the lighter products, being the, the light oil and the gasoline and diesel, to serve the, the market here in the lower mainland. I, I think he wanted to know about the dilutant, so the stuff that you mix the bitumen with to dilute it. Where do you where do you mix this stuff? 
Yeah, that occurs up in Edmonton before it enters our pipeline. Uh, Our producers have to deliver to us a product that is transportable in the pipeline. They take the heavier bitumen and they dilute it with uh, condensates and and the lighter ends of of, uh, other oil commodities in order to create a new blend, which is called diluted bitumen, which is is really just heavy oil. It's no different than heavy oil once uh, once it is blended together. Let's go to Chris and Langley. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Good. Um, so you guys, obviously, that you're twinning the pipeline, and there's supposed to be safeties in place and everything to prevent spills in the whole nine yards. Now, while you're twinning that, does that mean you're going to be digging up the original line, checking for any weaknesses, and fixing that as preventative measures? We're not going to be actively uh, digging up the existing line while we're putting in the new line. Um, we run integrity tools through that existing line every year, about five or six different kinds of tools to check the integrity of, of the pipeline. We do, on average, um, I would say between 80 and 100 uh, digs of the pipeline every single year to test and to uh, correct if required any anomalies in the pipeline. And those could be small dents, they could be small uh, weld features, etc. But our integrity program on the existing line is is extensive. Um, that line has uh, you know been in in very very well run, capable service for for 60 years, and its life is is still indefinite. There will be some features that will come with the new pipeline that will benefit the existing pipeline. For example, we will be installing more valves uh, on the existing line than currently exist uh, or on the new line than currently exist on the old line. That will provide more segregation and more uh, valve closure capabilities. We'll also be installing high-tech, state-of-the-art leak detection um, uh, devices along the new line that will similarly benefit the uh, the existing line. So the existing line will benefit from the new line going in, but okay. it's it's not a, uh, a place that we're going to be redigging the old line. We're, we, we look at that every day. 604-280-9898 is the number. Erica in Richmond, hi. Yes, hi. Mr. Anderson, I am for the pipeline. However, I have some concerns, and uh, twinning the pipeline means probably doubling capacity, and this increase means how many more ships will there be collecting um, uh, this, this oil? Uh, are you going to be using larger ships? Because that means less ships. And in general, what are you doing to lessen the shipping impact on the oceanic environment? Very good questions, Erica. Thank you very much for them. Uh, we will the capacity of the pipeline will be almost tripling uh, from three hundred thousand barrels a day up to almost nine hundred. We will have the capacity to move um, upwards of thirty four thirty five ships per month. Uh, today we have the capacity to move about uh, five or six. So there will be a, a increase in capacity availability for vessels. Um, and as I was saying earlier, we're investing um, $150 million in spill response capability. We're uh, working with the, uh, with the uh, Coast Guard and uh, Department of Transport for, as has been announced previously, increased um, large tug capabilities on the West Coast in order to be able to respond. We are increasing the... Um, tug escort uh, conditions around all vessels where they'll be escorted uh, farther and uh, further into the uh, into the, the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Okay. 
so there's a number of things. We're, we're training more pilots uh, for, for the increase in traffic. And the ships will be essentially the same size as they are today. Um, that's the uh, that's the commitment we've made to the port. So there won't be larger vessels. They'll be the same as they are today, but there'll be, as I said, hundreds of millions of dollars invested in tug capabilities, tug escort capabilities, and trained response. Okay. I thought the Aframax uh, tankers are larger. The they ones are being brought in. We, we load Aframax vessels today. We load okay. both Panamax and Aframax vessels. Uh, the Panamax vessels take about 350,000 barrels, and the Aframax will take up to about 550,000 barrels. Paul and Burnaby, hi. Hi, uh, Mr. Anderson. A couple of questions. Uh, my understanding is the diluted bitumen that you're going to be transporting through the new line is quite corrosive. Uh, how is that uh, going to affect the life of the new pipeline? And my second question is, uh, are there any current spills um, that you guys have not cleaned up, like on people's properties with the existing pipeline? Ian Anderson. Diluted bitumen is not a corrosive substance. Um, it's just like any other oil. Uh, once that bitumen is diluted, um, uh, you know, there's a bit of myth that it still has sand in it from, from the oil sands. There's no sand in it. It's not more corrosive. It's not more uh, harmful to a pipeline than, than any other oil. Uh, to the second question of, of spills, uh, we are aware of one site. Uh, which is on the Coldwater Reserve that we've been trying to get the, the band there to agree to let us on to clean it up. It's a historical um, spill that occurred back in the early 70s. Uh, we came aware of it with some integrity work we were doing a couple of years ago. And it, it's not causing any harm to the groundwater uh, or to... Uh, the community. However, we do want to get in and, and get the, the band's agreement to get in to clean it up, and we haven't had the opportunity to, to get there yet with them. Uh, but there aren't any other locations where we're, we are aware of anything along the pipeline corridor. Let's go right back to your phone calls now. Steve in Port Coquitlam. Yes, Mr. Anderson. I was wondering, uh, major concern out here in British Columbia is the rail service. I was just on the understanding, I read an article from CBC last week, in Alberta, you're shipping now 168 barrels per day to 400, up, increasing it to 400,000. Is that going to be something that's going to be ongoing, or is that just now, or for the future? I just I wanted to know. I just wanted to hit no answer that question. That's uh, oil being moved by rail in Alberta. Is that going to be something that's going to be ongoing, yeah. or is that just now, okay. or Ian Anderson? Yeah, currently um, oil by rail is uh, increased in Alberta quite significantly over the course of the last two or three years as essentially all of the pipeline access uh, filled up. Uh, so all the pipelines leaving Alberta are full um, as production naturally continues to grow by the tune of 102,000 barrels a day in, in the province. Much of that has found its way onto rail. Um, the market really dictates, uh, you know, production and rail movements. I think today, um, as new pipeline capacity comes on, whether it's our project or, or Enbridge's Line 3 or TC Energy's Keystone XL, that's going to reduce the amount of, of rail movements. But I don't think rail is going away. I think it is, is a fallback. Uh, it's about... Depending upon the market it's accessing, it's two to three times the cost of moving a barrel uh, on rail versus uh, through a pipeline. So it's much more costly to move it by rail, but it does provide producers flexibility. I don't think it's going away, but with more pipes, I think you'll certainly see less rail. Let's go to Andrew in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, Mr. Anderson. Uh, 
there. Um, first, I, uh, as a pipeline opponent, I'd just like to thank Mr. Ian Anderson for, for speaking to the public like this. I think it's really important. Um, my question is two points. Uh, the first is with regards to the condensate that's in the, that they mix the bitumen with. Is that condensate removed in Vancouver and then sent back to be reused? And the other part of my question is he had mentioned virtually all the oil spilled on a marine spill could be recovered. And I would just like to ask if there's ever been a uh, that he's aware of a large-scale marine spill um, anywhere where more than 20% of what was spilled was ever recovered. The only reason I would ask that is because sea conditions matter, and of course, out here on the West Coast, we have a lot of winds, turbulent seas, and that would impact greatly, I would think, the amount of uh, time available and the disbursement time that would happen between when recovery vessels would arrive and be cleaned up. Ian Anderson. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. And, and to the first question, no, that condensate is not stripped out of the bitumen. It, it is moved as heavy oil, as diluted bitumen, um, as, a, as a single commodity. Uh, to the second question, you know, you're very right that, that, that weather conditions, uh, sea conditions are going to have an effect. Um, that's absolutely true. Uh, what we would say is the modeling that we've done under under predictable and, and normal conditions, uh, albeit, you know, that they can be uh, some rough seas at times. Uh, we believe that, that, that the science is telling us we can deploy equipment and have uh, an oil spill contained. And uh, I'm not sure that um, uh, every spill is the same. They're all different and they'll all, they'll all have different circumstances. But our, our testing is, is, is telling us that with the added spill capacity we're, we're deploying, we can um, effectively, you know, uh, capture, you know, the, the vast majority, if not 100% of what is, uh, is leaked. I don't have a really firsthand in-depth knowledge of other spills around the globe and what percentages have been cleaned up, I think is very geographically specific. And we've tailored our plan around this geography and these conditions yeah. to, to increase that response. I, I guess a specific question was, are you aware of any spill anywhere in which more than 20% of the oil was cleaned up? Are you? Aware? I, I don't. I don't have specific knowledge of the amounts that have have been right. captured under under spills. Or, you know that have occurred. What we do know is that the the incident of uh, spills around the world have decreased dramatically over the last couple of decades uh, post Valdez, when really shipping uh, changed fundamentally to different types of ships with different kinds of uh, of capabilities. Let's go to Glenn in Maple Ridge. Hi. Hey, uh, yeah, I, I'm also very glad that you're on the phone. You're a, you're a brave man. Uh, but uh, I got a couple. It's a two-point question. Actually, the first point, or the first question is a two-pointer. First and foremost, one of the arguments is that uh, uh, the the bitumen uh, is getting such a low cost because we have one customer selling it to the U.S. of A. alone, and they're discounting our, our price. So what what can Canada as a nation benefit as far as an increase in in, in, in the in the price and in the in the revenue that the, the nation's going to get, and my second point on that question is, what is British Columbia post construction of the pipeline once it starts flowing and going? What how much revenue is projected for British Columbia once it's the dust is settled and it's built? Uh, are, is, is British Columbia going to benefit from okay. this? Okay. My second question, hang on. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave you, just limit you to those two questions. Ian Anderson, go ahead. So to the first point, uh, Glenn, the 
the current discount of a Canadian barrel versus a global price is is anywhere from you know fourteen to fifteen dollars. That fluctuates over time depending upon market conditions. It peaked up to as high as thirty five or forty dollars uh, late last year, and that's the the differential that producers are going to have access to if they can access global markets for their oil. Right now, it is heavily discounted, and those benefits of that higher price translate into. Um, higher royalties paid to the province of Alberta, uh, higher taxes paid by producers and uh, other suppliers, as well as uh, you know greater investment into uh, production in order to serve the market demand. As far as you know, what does BC get from this? Um, you know, we're going to have a peak of five, six thousand jobs, uh, workers on 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 the pipeline. Uh, post uh, pipeline completion, uh, we will double the amount of property tax. As we pay in the communities in British Columbia. We will pay um, multiples of the existing taxes we pay to the province of British Columbia. We'll increase the GDP in the province by uh, tens of millions of dollars every year. We've committed to British Columbia to pay a minimum of 25 and up to $50 million per year uh, as, a, as a, an agreement we made with the previous Christy Clark government around the five conditions she had, and that's to go directly into environmental causes in British Columbia. So we think there are significant benefits. Uh, our website has great information on the amount of benefits both to Canada, Alberta, and British Columbia, if, uh, okay. if you care to look. Bob in Chilliwack. Well, regarding uh, uh, Asian-held leases in the oil sands, how much capacity do those leases require, shipping capacity? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I know that PetroChina is a customer of ours. Uh, They move barrels uh, on our system today. Uh, Those barrels aren't all destined back to uh, back to China. They they're a global participant and they move those barrels to 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 markets around the world. Um, They're a participant in our expansion. They've committed to capacity on the expansion. Uh, there aren't any other uh, Asian interests specifically who have contracted for capacity uh, on the pipeline. Uh, the amount of production that Asian interests have in uh, in Alberta right now, uh, I'm not sure I, I know exactly, but uh, it certainly is far from the majority. The vast majority of the production is coming from Canadian companies like CNRL and Suncor and Synovus would be the three largest players okay. who are Canadian. Bill in Vancouver. Yes, hi. Uh, I would just like to thank uh, Mr. Anderson for coming on radio. I wish more uh, leaders in business would just come on and just like, hey, let's just talk. Let's just talk. So kudos. Yeah, uh, number number uh, number two is um, uh, I'm very pro pipeline. Um, I and I also wish that uh, um, the eco terrorists would face the maximum force of the law instead of the gutless RCMP. And also, um, it's, hey, what's it's your question? terrible. What's your question? My question is, is um, how do we, how do we as pro pipeliners, like my, you know, to defend the pipeline, it's, it's just, for me, it's like, do I want trains on rail dumping a train loads of uh, bitumen in the rivers? Or should I just have a super nice, tidy pipeline that brings it right to the shore and off you go and take care of it? Like, it just is so illogical to me to not have a pipeline. Do you have a question for him? 
Yeah, I just want them to defend. Well, like, what are all the pros of the pipeline versus rail and all the left-wing wacko eco-terrorists? Okay, all right. Ian Anderson. I appreciate the call, Bill, and, and, and thanks for your support. And, and I think what's important, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things is that um, there are lots of views and opinions, uh, some for, some against. We're seeing growing support as people, I think, become more informed of, of some of the facts and some of the information that's been available. We've seen that trend occur in British Columbia and across Canada as the profile of this pipeline has has increased. And I think it's important for all voices to be heard. And I think it's important, Bill, for your voice to be heard by your municipal officials, your provincial officials, um, and, your, and your friends and neighbors. Uh, there's, there's a lot of benefits that comes from the construction of this of this pipeline. The markets are there for the oil. Uh, it's going to be served by somebody, and our view is better served by good Canadian, um, you know, highly regulated, highly sustainable environmental uh, regulations uh, rather than some other places in the world. I know you got to go. Let's squeeze in one more. Clark and Burnaby, hi. Yeah, hi. Hello, Mr. Anderson. Uh, just, I have one question for you. Who who are you working for? I work for Trans Mountain Corporation, which is a crown corporation that's owned by um, the Canadian Economic Development uh, arm of government. Um, so we're we're separate and distinct from the crown. We're a crown corporation operating independently with an independent board that reports up effectively into the Minister of Finance. I, I just want to say, uh, Ian Anderson, I uh, echo many of the callers on the line here today, including many who were opposed to the pipeline, all of whom said they appreciate your time and willingness to come on and take uh, any and all questions. So I would just echo that, and thank you for coming on today. Let's let's do it again. We come back and do it again, please? I most certainly will, Mike, any time. Okay. It's important to hear from British Columbians and British Columbians who care enough about this project from, from all sides. I, I appreciate all of your listeners' interest. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. That's Ian Anderson. He's the president and CEO of Trans Mountain Pipeline. They'll talk about the housing crisis in Metro Vancouver now, and especially the swelling number of homeless people in the region. And I, I think when you use that word homeless, it conjures up a picture of someone you might see on the street, maybe someone dealing with mental illness or drug addiction, or in many cases, both. And those are the people you might see on the street struggling and vulnerable those are the visible homeless the people you see on the street or in an alley but there are other people who are also homeless and struggling especially in this housing market that may not fit that sort of preconceived image that a lot of people have and, and that's why i think the the current series we got now with reporter robin crawford i think is uh, so timely it's called the hidden homeless which i think is a great title for this and robin uh, joins me now hi robin hi mike okay thousands of people falling victim to the housing crisis across metro vancouver and as we were just chatting off air a, a lot of people don't f fall into that category i just described of you know the typical sort of homeless person you might see on the street but there are other people that are just like you know like you me and everybody else yeah it's just the average joe you know yeah. i met uh, one woman her name was lynn and she worked for the vancouver school board for 25 years and she wow. retired at 65 as you as you would and she lasted one year and then couldn't pay her rent her pension didn't cover the funds that she needed and now she's living in a tent on Brooks Bank in North Vancouver wow i mean that's amazing right and this is the hidden homeless that we're talking about that people you might not think uh, would be 
struggling to find a place to live, but there are lots of people out there in that in that category. You've been doing a really excellent series on this in this, Robin. We heard the first uh, part of the your hidden homeless series this morning on the John McComb show with Simi uh, Simi Sarah guest hosting. Uh, your next series, we're going to play some of it here right now. This one takes a look at. Uh, North Vancouver. Do you want to set this up for me? What are we going to hear here? Yeah, so we know we've seen lots of cities step up and 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 build modular houses. We've seen provincial funding going towards uh, a social housing and, and really helping out people here on disability, on pension. And there's one area, and it's on the North Shore, where there is no modular homes. There is 736 estimated homeless people living in North Vancouver, but there is only one shelter and it has 46 beds. Now, that math does not make any sense. And now we're going to find out what exactly the three levels of government are doing to help those people up on the North Shore. Okay, well, let's have a little listen to uh, the next part of your series here, Robin. This is part two of a three-part series uh, exploring the lives of the hidden homeless in North Vancouver. The definition of community is, is how we treat our most vulnerable. If, if, that's, the, if that's the scorecard for, for a community on how we treat our most vulnerable, we're not doing very well on the North Shore. That's Shane Williams, CEO of The Only Shelter in North Vancouver. He says they're regularly at capacity, turning people away and unable to service the estimated 736 homeless people living on the North Shore. Meanwhile, the province has allocated almost $20 million to build two mixed-income buildings in North Vancouver. But MLA for North Van Lonsdale, Bowen Ma, says both the city and the district have been dragging their feet. Now, I understand why a community like North Vancouver might be concerned about uh, their neighbourhoods changing too quickly, but I would also be very concerned about them missing the opportunity to actually work with a provincial government that is eager, ready, willing, and has billions of dollars on the table right now to help them build that affordable housing. Earlier this year, the District of North Van Mayor and Council shut down a 100-unit affordable housing project. Mayor Mike Little says in a statement they will be working on a partnership focusing on vulnerable women later this year. But Williams says we need to be taking advantage of government funding. If you've got the political will and you've got the need, uh, you have to be you have to be creating housing right now, uh, and there's no doubt about the need. MP of North Van Jonathan Wilkinson agrees. It's up to the municipalities to carry these projects out. There certainly is are not enough shelter beds uh, in North Vancouver uh, to address the need. It is certainly something that has been a conversation for some substantial period of time. As you know, I mean, most of the tools with respect to zoning and and enabling the opening of, of these kinds of facilities lie at the municipal level. James, who lost his North Van apartment when he went on disability, says he hasn't seen any action from any level of government. The, the government doesn't seem to be helping us, and, you know, it seems like they want us to go beg for a handout, you know, like instead of giving us maybe an increase in our disabilities, which which would be nice if we got one that could actually, you know, cover some of the living costs. Richard's been homeless since he couldn't afford the rent when his home foreclosed. He says the district doesn't want low-income housing because people coming from living on the street get a bad rap. A lot of people might think of homeless people as being drug addicts, violent people maybe, but by far and large that's not the case. I've met some very nice, a number of very nice people, and they think the same thing. How did I end up being homeless? Robin Crawford, Global News. 
All right, Robin, really great job there. It was part two of the Hidden Homeless series by Global News reporter Robin Crawford. And by the way, you can hear the whole series online at cknw.com. We played part one earlier today, Robin, as, as we mentioned on the John McComb Show. What can people? What will people hear in that part one audio if they go online and check it out? Yeah, so they'll hear all about uh, many people that I spoke to on the street. You know, I spent uh, three full days talking to people living uh, who were homeless on the North Shore. And yeah. the thing that people are going to here is that they are just like me and you. These are not drug addicts. Yeah. These are not, uh, you know, people that we can't relate to. They, you know, worked their lot, whole lives. They went to school. They did all the right things, and and they just can't cover their rent. And and you're also going to learn that there's only one shelter, and that's the thing. Yeah. You're going to hear from the shelter, and you're going to hear that they're saying that they're turning people away, that they cannot bed all these homeless people that are in the North Shore right now. Okay, you mentioned that people like, you know, they're like you and me, they're, they're people you wouldn't think would be homeless, but in many cases are. How do people get in a situation like that? We heard one guy there talk about a disability increase, right? So some people end up disabled. Yeah, I mean, that's all it takes, right? You get injured at work and uh, you're on disability and the disability right now is not enough to cover living costs, specifically in North Vancouver. I mean, it's across Metro Vancouver, but these people, they want to stay there. And and that fellow you're talking about, James, he's lived there his whole life. You know, the North Shore is his home. And I asked him, I said, well, why don't you move out to Abbotsford or Chilliwack where the rents are cheaper and and you might be able to afford it a little bit better. And he said, this is my home. My family is here. My friends are here. I want to get a job here. I'm trying the best that I possibly can. Just at this moment, I can't afford rent. Okay, you got part three of your series coming up this afternoon on the Linda Steele Show. What will listeners uh, hear in that part? Yeah, so we're going to be uh, moving forward a little bit here. We're going to find out exactly what the government is doing. We're going to find out that uh, the MLA, Bowen Ma, uh, she really is pushing for that modular housing. She sent uh, yeah. three letters to all three mayors up on the minis- up on the North Shore, and uh, she's asking them to... Um, do public consultations, uh, talk to the community and and get that modular house, housing up there because that's what they need. Okay, great job, Robin. Thanks for that. Thanks, Mike. That's Global News reporter Robin Crawford. Her series is The Hidden Homeless. Uh, make sure you stay tuned for the Linda Steele Show coming up this afternoon with part three of her series and you can hear it all online at cknw.com.